Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Going to John chapter 15. Father, we ask for the word to open to us. We are disciples. We choose to live our lives for Jesus, not simply uh, believe something. We choose to be followers. We choose to be what you've called us to be. We ask you to feed us today. We need our our spirit built. We need we need faith. We need hope. We need healing. We need we need to hear from you, Jesus. Just one touch of you changes everything. And I pray for the grace to get out of the way and let you speak today. Lord, open our ears, our eyes, soften our hearts, and grace us. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. All right, we're in John chapter 15. I will uh, begin at verse 1. And I'm reading down to verse 6. I am the true vine... And my father is the vine dresser. Would you say that with me? I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, you and I can't, at least my translation doesn't catch the, 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 the play on words there. But he actually had said, every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it uh, so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean. So he's, 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 uh, he's, he's talking, uh, he's playing on the word there. Because of the word I've spoken to you, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Would you say that? I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Whoa. Here we go. (laughs) Staying attached. Salvation isn't a transaction, it's a relationship. Now, that, I wrote that, that's not scripture, but it's worth repeating. Would you say it? Salvation isn't a transaction, it's a relationship. We don't do something to get something. We meet someone and then walk with that person for the rest of our lives. Then when we arrive at our final day, he carries us through the veil of death into eternal life. Did you understand what I just said? Because we, by nature and the way it's treated so often in our, in our culture, is that salvation is you pray this little prayer, do this little thing, you're in. If there's anything to it, you'll go to heaven. Got it? Done. That's not it at all. It is a relationship. You come, you come in, you meet someone, and you walk with that person for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. Um, You and I will absolutely come to the day when we're breathing our last breath. You understand that? I'm not trying to be scary. It's just true. 
Jesus constantly is trying to get us to see that we're, we're mortal. We're dying, that this life is passing. People live in denial. They live in amazing denial. They feel there's always one more medicine that'll just get me some more time. And they just, they just keep trying to push that boundary back. But the time comes when the last breath goes out of you. Are you ready for that? Do you know that? I got a wonderful letter. Uh, just a, it's just a note from one of, the, one of the members of the church. He said, uh, thank you for the beautiful plant you sent. And not me. I, it's a church. You, you sent it uh, to our family. My mom was a spunky 94 years old. I am so thankful to have been able to take care of her these past 11 weeks. She was able to spend time with her grandkids as well as her great-grandkids. And then it says, when her hospice nurse asked her if she was afraid to die, she said, of course not. I know I'm going to heaven, just like Pastor Steve says. <laughs> I will greatly miss her. She was sweet right up to the end. She's been listening. Yeah. That's, there's, that's a woman who's prepared. She knows the Lord. She's ready to go. And so she knows that she's gonna, she's, she's, her spirit will just rise up and she'll step right across. She's prepared. She's not afraid of it. Boy, if you, I'm going to tell you, when people don't have that relationship and they aren't prepared, they're very frightened. They go into all kinds of, 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 of really strange behavior because they're, they're just terrifying what's in front of them. Those things that get settled, you start the walk now. You start the relationship now. You meet him now, let's go on. It's a relationship that connects us to the creator, the one from whom all life flows. Life does not originate from an organic process. It produces an organic process. It comes from life, pardon me, it comes from God and is sustained by God. One of the most amazing statements John makes in the opening to his gospel is this, in him, meaning Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. In him was life. That means that life, organic life and spiritual life, comes to us through the Son, through Jesus. To be in relationship with Jesus is to be connected to the source of life. To be detached from him is to die. Look, any of you go, well, I'm sure you do. This happens to me all the time. When I help vacuuming... You plug it in, and then you get to that far corner, and you just think, I think I can get it. And it pulls the plug out. Everything's the same. You've got a complete machine, but it's lifeless. It's been disconnected. When you put that plug back in, the whole thing comes back to life. Pull it out, it's gone. When you're connected to Jesus, there's life in you. Disconnected, you die. It's a simple as that. It, he, uh, his presence transforms whatever it touches. It heals things that are sick. It restores things that are broken. It frees things that are bound. It resuscitates things that have died. It reveals things that are hidden. It restores sight to those who are spiritually blind. That, this is what Jesus came to make possible. A restored relationship. A reconnection to the source of life. When God made Adam, it says he leaned, oh, well, I didn't say they leaned over, but he breathed into his nostrils, it says, the breath of what? Life. Life. He did not breathe into him spirit. 
People often confuse this thing. Well, see, God breathed spirit into Adam. You know, no, he didn't. The spirit in person, your spirit is not God's breath in you. There is not that of God in every man. He breathed into Adam in this clay model, apparently, went and lived. You have biological life in you. It's a gift from God. All life comes from him. You are spirit because he made you in his image. That's why you're spirit. He made you. You are a spiritual being living in a clay body. In, 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 animated by the breath of God, the life of God that's in you. Do you understand? Yeah, this, it, he is our source. He, he sustains us. The moment, if he were, to, if he were to, to stop giving life, we all perish. Somewhere in Jerusalem, by the light of a full moon, Jesus continued to prepare his disciples for his departure. And, it's at, and at its heart, that preparation was based on a warning. They were heading into an entirely new season. No longer would he be physically present to guide them, teach them, correct them, and comfort them. No longer would, he be able to, would they be able to stand beside him and watch him perform miracles. Now, they would have to learn to minister in God's power for themselves. And the spiritual climate in the nation was already changing. Violent persecution lay ahead, not only for him, but for them as well. Many forces were waiting to pull them away from him, but they must not let that happen. They must keep their relationship with him alive at all costs. He would return in spirit to be with them. He would do his part to protect that relationship, but they must do their part as well. To explain how important that would be, he used a grapevine as an illustration. He said, like the green canes that grew out of the woody stalk of that vine, they must stay attached to him or they would die. And he wouldn't have said that if it were impossible to become detached. They needed to do their part, and in time, the time they had left together, he told them how. We need to listen because we need to stay attached to him as well. We have seen through chapters 13 and 14, Jesus in that upper room. Uh, these, they have a Passover meal. Uh, all, all that he's taught and has transpired has been in that upper room. At the end of chapter 14, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, rise, let's go from here. And so he leads them out. Here's why. Jesus led his disciples out into the moonlit night. How do I know it's moonlit? It's Passover. It's a full moon. No question. When Jesus returned, the soldiers would find the upper room empty. See, Judas has left the, in the middle of the Passover meal, and he's gone to the temple to report to the, to the high priests the location of Jesus. That's what he's getting the money for. Uh, he's going to lead them back to where Jesus is. And so where was he? He's in the upper room. So they're going to come back there. That's why Jesus says, arise, let's go from here. It's not time for me to be arrested yet. I'm, I'll wait and be arrested but I still have more to teach you. And so, so he leads them out into this moonlit night, and somewhere along the way, uh, he stops with this group of 11, and he continues to teach them, continues to prepare them. And, and I mentioned that all along, the, the, particularly the east side of the, of the, uh, of the Kidron uh, ravine there, between the temple and the Mount of Olives, are these gons, these uh, terraced gardens, and uh, still there. And uh, so those would have, they all had uh, vines, figs, and uh, olives 
it's what would be planted there. So I, I think it seems like he stops somewhere by, a, by not, uh, one of those, and he starts talking about this olive, uh, or this, uh, pardon me, this grapevine. When he finished, uh, pardon me, he, in, in, pardon me, verse 1, in some secluded place he continued to prepare them for his departure. He began with a warning, using a grapevine as an illustration. He said, I am the true vine, and my father is the farmer. The image of the grapevine was a very important one, and every Jew knew its meaning. The grapevine was one of the three great agricultural symbols for the nation of Israel. The other two were the fig tree and the olive. Okay, so these three symbols are all speak to the Jewish mind. These are, are symbols of our nation. You go all through the prophets and everything, they use them. The, um, the olive tree, as far as I can see, particularly emphasizes that they are the, they are the offspring of, of uh, Abraham and Sarah. That those are the roots, and here is the tree that grew from it. The fig tree, we've said before, is the big tree. In that gone, that, uh, that uh, terrace garden, uh, they would have a, a couple of fig trees. And those are the big tree, and it speaks of the spiritual leadership. Remember when Jesus came to that fig tree and it had no... No figs on it. What did he do? He cursed it. Uh, it's, it's addressing the spiritual leadership of Israel in particular. The Messiah has arrived and found no fruit on his tree. And so he, he cursed the thing and it would be removed. The, uh, the grapevine speaks of the nation supposed to produce fruit for God. It's a fruit producing plant. It's supposed to bring him uh, fruit. What does God want? What kind of fruit is he looking for? People. People and character. He wants his people to become holy and righteous and love him. And he wants them to multiply into many. God is, this whole thing is about bringing people to God. Bring righteous people. But the, but the, but the olive tree of Israel at that point had not produced many righteous people. Yet the nation had not produced large numbers of people who had become righteous by faith. See, that's the point. There were many generations in which there was only a small remnant of true believers. That's been true in church history, too. The grapevine had not filled the father's house with fruit, children. So by sending his son, the Messiah, the father was planting another grapevine, one that would become very fruitful. By his cross and resurrection, Jesus would produce much fruit. He would bring salvation to many in Israel and around the world. Yet Jesus, the true grapevine, would soon ascend into heaven. So his disciples must become the ones who actually bore fruit. To explain to them how that would happen, he compared them to the canes or green shoots that grow out of the woody stalk of the vine. The grapes themselves grow on those canes, never on the woody stalk. Which is why the canes must remain attached to the stalk. That allows the sap that comes from the stock to flow into them. If a cane becomes detached, it dies. Did you know this about grapevines? Yeah, they're, they're, if, you, if you have one, there's this woody, I mean, this kind of rough, peely bark that goes on the thing. And uh, then you have each season, you cut it back, and then each season, out come these green, flexible canes. And that's the word that is used here. So he, he says, he says I'm, the, I'm the stock that has the roots and provides the, the sap, the life. But you are those green canes that come out of it. And the grapes only grow on the green canes. So they, they, they grow out, and that's where the, the grapes are. So he says, you're the, you're the canes with little precious fruit. I am the, the, I am the, the, the woody stalk. 
I'm where your life source comes from. The evidence of detachment, he says, is fruitlessness. Did you notice? The cane that becomes separated from the vine will not produce grapes. And in time, will dry up and die. In Jesus' illustration, if you're attached to the vine, you will produce fruit. If you are detached from the vine, you will not produce fruit. And the farmer who sees the cane in that condition will at some point remove it. The assurance contained in Jesus' statement is to those who remain attached to him and therefore produce fruit. They can anticipate that the Father will continually clean, it's translated prune, away any necessary sprouts that draw energy from the fruit. The process would certainly include correction and discipline, which might seem painful at the time, but should not be seen as a sign of rejection, but rather as a sign of the Father's approval. The Father is making it possible for that person to produce even more fruit. How many of you say, I have definitely had signs of the Father's approval in my life. He has disciplined me. <laughs> Three of us, come on. Now, I know it's not true. Either that or you're in trouble. Uh, it's a good thing. I, I love the proverb. It's uh, Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12 there. It says, uh, it says, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, nor loathe his reproof. Did you hear that? Loathe his reproof. <laughs> he says, uh, for the, whom, the lo whom the Lord loves, he, he disciplines, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. If God loves you, if, you're his, if you produce fruit, you can count on this. He will cut away from your life things that compete with what? Your fruit production. This fruit is big to God. He really cares about you and the role you have for him. That you produce fruit for him is his goal. He loves you, yes. But you are here, and, and, and I don't think we realize the urgency of it all. People are making decisions for eternity. And either we are a part of the process of helping people come to know him, or we are not. And it's, and it's just not okay in God's thinking for us to not be part of that. There is no place where you just don't have to play in this game. You just get yourself to heaven and go. He doesn't think that way. He's thinking for, you know, if, if, you, if you're mine, I, I need you. On, I need you on the game, in the game. I need you helping. I need you to rose up your sleeve and do, and do it. So he is going to prune out of our lives things that, that aren't, aren't part of that. Um, we're there to make fruit for him, just as the vine always was. Jesus was about to leave his disciples. He would no longer be physically present to walk beside them day by day, and his absence would test them. Would they continue to believe in him? Would they remain an active, in active relationship with him? Would they endure the suffering that comes with being one of his disciples? If they did not, their capacity to bear fruit to bring others to salvation, and yes, to be formed in Christ's image, would end. And the transformative work of the Holy Spirit continually forming them into the image of Jesus would cease. Everything would depend on them staying attached to him. And then, repeating a word he had used earlier that evening as he washed their feet, Jesus assured them that they were, they were clean. He said, you are already clean by means of the word I have spoken to you. To emphasize the importance of this warning and to make sure his disciples knew it applied to them, Jesus said, remain in me and I in you. Just as the cane is not able to bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the grapevine, in the same way, neither can you unless you remain in me. 
we notice in this statement two important phrases. He again used the words in me and in you. In those two directions of being in had great meaning for Jesus. He spoke earlier of himself as being in the Father and of the Father being in him. He also applied those same concepts to the relationship between himself and his disciples. You, you, you follow what I'm saying? Jesus said, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. And that, that had great meaning for him. I'll, I'll explain it in a second. And then he also said, and now you are to be in me and I in you. In other words, you and I have a, are to relate to Jesus the same way Jesus related with his Father. He has that same relationship. Well, by bringing those concepts into this illustration of a grapevine, Jesus was giving his disciples a deeper meaning, a deeper understanding of its meaning. Going forward, every one of them should seek to submit to, depend on, and perfectly represent him. And each should rely on his guidance and power. By doing so, they would stay attached to him, drawing their spiritual life from him. That's what in means. He says, I'm, when he says, I'm in the Father, he means I, I, I follow the Father, I represent the Father, I, I, I completely surrender to the Father. By the Father being in him, he says, he's, my, he's, he's empowering me, he's guiding me, he's at work through me. Now, he says, you are to have that relationship with me. You are to follow me, seek to serve me, uh, uh, submit to me. I, in you, will empower you, guide you, and strengthen you. You will walk with me the same way. Then he repeated the illustration and clarified its meaning even further. He said, I am the grapevine, you are the canes. The one who remains in me and I in him, this one bears much fruit, because separated from me, you cannot do anything. To be attached to Jesus is to bear much fruit. To be detached from him is to accomplish absolutely nothing of spiritual worth. He would depart soon, but after a short while, he would return spiritually, and, then from, and from then on, he would be their source of life. If they would stay strong in their faith, if they would actively seek to obey him, the life-giving relationship with God, which his cross and resurrection would make possible, would continue to flow into them. Jesus would guide them. The Holy Spirit would empower them. And in that way, the Father would do great works through them. They would bring God to people and lead people to God. And that was the fruit for which the Father longed. Do you see the warning in this? It's a pretty uncomfortable thing, actually. Uh, and it's, and I'll, I'll say more in a minute, but that's why this, this passage gets really worked over. Uh, people are very interested in, in, in saying now, he didn't mean what he said. <laughs> he, he didn't mean that. You know, we're always apologizing for Jesus. Have you noticed he's a hothead? You know, he just says stuff that you think, whoa, why? He? Uh, no, he did mean it. He's about to leave them. And he says, now I'm going to heaven. You stay attached to me. You stay attached. And he's probably got a vibe right there. He says, just as these canes are attached here and the life flows through them and they bear fruit, you must stay attached to me. I will physically be gone. I'll be in heaven. I'll be spiritually with you. You stay attached to me. You stay attached to me. The warning. Then Jesus restated that warning in unavoidable terms. Verse 6. He said, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown outside and, and, the, and, is, and as is the lifeless cane and is dried and they gather them together and cast them into the fire and they are burned. I told you it gets uncomfortable. The father would take the canes that had become detached and therefore fruitless and he would place them in a pile outside the vineyard to dry. 
And then when they were completely dried, he would burn them. I am sure those words made the disciples very uncomfortable. They knew what he meant. He was telling them that they had started on a journey they must finish. They had entered a relationship they must not let wither. If they did, they would be lost. God's side. Needless to say, that warning still worries us, which is why so many Bible teachers have spent so much time trying to convince us that Jesus didn't really mean what he just said. You know, I have wondered for years why I don't understand some of these passages, because I've read a lot, you know, and I've been around a long time, and, and I think, why am I still confused? I now know. The sources, the voices are confused. You have competing voices on all these major things, and this is this one, <laughs> this is one. What are they uncomfortable about? Well, if you teach once saved, always saved, you hate this verse, and, and so you've got to make it say something else, don't you? Because he just said, if you become detached, you'll perish and die. And they say, well, you can't become detached. You know, and so they're stuck. And it's one of those, so you've got to take this thing and somehow make it say, it didn't, don't believe your lion eyes. It, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. Well, yeah, he did. But put, we, but put in context, if we understand what's going on, it's not a frightening, but it is a, a, a sober warning. Look, brothers and sisters, your spiritual life is the most precious treasure you have. It is not to be treated with, with indifference. It is not to be neglected. It is not something, it is not a transaction you prayed when you were 13, and if there's anything to it, you'll go to heaven. You're really game in the system. You are really game in the system when you do that. It is something that we walk with. We have met, uh, we've met someone, and we walk with him the rest of our lives. So that when we come to our final breath, like that dear woman, we step across confidently into eternity. And I think what frightens people is the thought that we are the ones who are responsible to keep that relationship with Jesus alive. We are all very aware of our own weaknesses. We've watched our willpower cave in many times when we've faced temptation. We've struggled consistently to read the Bible or pray. Our schedules may make it difficult to gather with other believers. So we think to ourselves, if my eternal life depends on my strength, my discipline, my wisdom, my ability to do what's right, I am in serious trouble. If I'm keeping this relationship alive, then it's only a matter of time before I'm doomed. And I think that's an accurate assessment of the situation. If remaining attached to Jesus depended only on us, we would all become detached. Somebody say, uh. Yeah, there you go. But the reason we don't is because this is not a one-sided relationship. He is more committed to preserving the relationship than we are. Paul said it this way. Why don't you read it with me? For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus never lets go. He keeps pursuing us and guiding us back onto the path he has for us. He knows our weaknesses better than we do. And he knows that we won't make it without him. Paul explains how God does this in Romans chapter 8. He reveals the Father's profound commitment to us by this statement. Why don't we read this again together? This is, you ought to, this is one of those we ought to all have memorized verses. It's a beauty. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Did you hear Paul's logic? 
If the Father would give you his Son, if he would send his Son from heaven, have him become a man and let, let, let the human race uh, torture him and brutally slaughter him, if he would give his Son, what would he withhold from you? What good gift does he have that he would? He, because he's given you his treasure. He's given you his best. He's given you the, his, his very heart. If he'll give you him, he'll give you anything. Did you hear that? Some, that's worth an amen. amen. Thank you. I feel better now. It is. If we get a hold of that truth in this whole business of, oh, I don't think God wants you, oh, we, it just would go away. Then Paul assures us that there is no end to God's mercy to forgive our sins. This is very important. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So he pictures, he pictures Jesus standing at the Father's right hand, interceding for us, and he says, who can condemn us? Who can bring a charge against us? And he's, 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 he's spent time in the, just the previous chapter talking about how we struggle, how we don't do what we want to do, and we do the things we don't want to do, and all of those things, and we're crying out help. And in this chapter, he's given us an answer. And one of the strong answers he gives is, you're walking with him. He's, his, his blood, his life, his, his mercy covers your weaknesses. He covers you while, you're, while this is going on. And finally, Paul declares that God promises to protect us from every spiritual power that would try to take us away from him. Listen, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's talking about before you die, after you die, in heaven, down in hell, no principality, no power, no thing can, can take you, he pictures us as though we're surrounded by the arms of God, can take you out of the arms of God. God will not allow any power to overrule you and, and pull you away from him. Isn't that beautiful? All right. So God is completely committed to give us every resource we need. God has provided all the forgiveness our sins will ever require. God will protect us from every form of spiritual enemy that would try to take us away from him. But Paul's not done. There's one more essential ingredient God must provide for us to be victorious. He must place his Holy Spirit inside us to give us the power we need to overcome the temptations we face, the attacks we endure, and the weakness of our own flesh. This is why the, the fact that we minister to 80% of those children, the baptism of the Spirit, that's not a game and it's not one more little thing that has no meaning. It's not just, oh, now they can talk in tongues. This is the power. It's given to all of us. You receive Christ, he gives it to you, but you must receive it. It's a very real thing, not a theology. You receive that power. You let him dwell in you, and he does. And by that power, you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. And without it, it's you and your willpower against, against, trying to do what God asks you to do, and it doesn't work real well to my experience. And what that, says Paul, is exactly what he's done. He's given us the same power that raised Jesus' dead body to life. We are weak, but God's spirit is in us to give us the strength we need to obey him. Can you overcome your addictions? Absolutely. 
The same power that raised the dead body of Jesus to life dwells in you. If you learn to lay hold of that power, yes, you can walk free and clean. No question about it. Our side. Thank you. Our side. So the reason these disciples didn't feel condemned by Jesus' warning about the grapevine, and neither should we, is because God has done more than enough to make it possible for even the weakest among us to stay attached. But God's abundant provision doesn't mean we can become passive. It doesn't mean we have no part to play in preserving the relationship. If we do not have a part to play, then everything Jesus said about the grapevine makes no sense. Why would he tell us to remain attached if it were impossible to become detached? No, the point of his illustration is that his disciples must still exercise their will, weak as it may be, to lay hold of the resources God has given us. Jesus said, remain in me and I in you. That means we must continue to submit to him, to depend on him, to seek to represent him in everything we do. When we fail, there's plenty of mercy to forgive us. But we still have to try. And if we keep trying, in time, we will learn how. He doesn't command us to do something we can't do. He's ordering us to do something that, with the resources he's provided, we can do. We can walk with him like he walked with the Father. We can obey him. We can learn to love one another. We can go and bear fruit. And we can endure in faith in the face of opposition. There has been, there's a theology, and it's, it's really taken a deep hold in the American thought life. And that is that once you're saved, you can't lose it. And it's, it's, it's based on the idea, I think it's based on a, on a fear, because there's not passages that say that. There's passages that say all of that I said, all the resources God has provided. In other words, if I want to go to heaven, I absolutely can. Nothing can take me away from him. But that the Bible constantly puts back and says, now walk with him. Uh, work out things like passages. People are real nervous about it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says, in other words, take it seriously. Those passages unnerve people because they, because they are the reasons I think that I just read. Look, if it's up to me, I'm toast. No, it's not. And what, what they're feeling is, I believe it's rooted in addiction. Whatever addictions it is, whether it's sexual addiction, whether it's uh, you know, narcotics or, or, or uh, alcohol or those kinds of things. And I think it goes way back. There's people who, have been, who are addicted and they say, God, I hate this. Get it out of my life. I get rid of it. I want it free. And, and they promise God, I'll promise I'll never do it again. I, I mean this, God. Have mercy on me. I'll never do it again. And then they do. And then they promise that again. And then they do. And then they promise that again. And then they do. And after about, what, 150 times or 1,000 times, they grow deeply frightened. And they think, and the thought comes, if I really meant it, I would have stopped by now. And, and, and that's not a godly thought, by the way. Um, they, they, they're thinking this, and then they begin to think, oh my goodness, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm toast, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hypocrite. And so they, they, there's, there's this teaching that says, well, uh, you know, he, he can't get rid of you. And I think they think he wants to. He's sick of me. I, I've failed so many times. He's disgusted with me, as I am with myself often. And so he wants rid of me, if he could, but he can't. Because there's a theology for it. No, he can't get rid of me. Look, that is a theology rooted in fear. 
and, 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 it, and it's not true. The Bible does say everything I just told you. He surrounds you. The, there is an endless resource of mercy. How many times can I do this? I don't know. But his grace is deeper. His, he will keep washing you. Did you hear me? Sin isn't the issue. This is the problem. Sin isn't the thing. What is this thing? You must stay in relationship. You must stay attached. And that is up. We have a role in that. And that's what the Bible keeps saying. Come back to him. Walk with him. Don't walk away from him. You, this is, you are not a slave here. He's not running you in and you can't get rid of it. You, know. you, can't, you are walking with him in love. And the Bible tells you, stay in that relationship. You see, if I, how, how long am I going to take to get free then? Well, how long is it going to take for somebody to teach you how to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the, by the Spirit? How long are you going to learn to walk in the power of God? Well, it takes, those are skills. Those are skills. Those are things we learn or are pastored into. And, and, and pastors don't know how. I mean, it's a lost art. This is the problem. And so the, church, so the church tells you walk righteously and then doesn't know how to help you do it. And so we really have a problem on our hands. And, and so we've come up with this theology that sort of covers the base. You know, at least you go to heaven. At least you go to heaven. How, what, what, what is the issue that makes the difference? Is there living faith burning in your heart? That's that lamp illustration. Remember with the, the virgins in the lamp and the oil? Is the lamp burning when you meet the bridegroom? Or has it gone out? What, and you, what happens is we're supposed to keep pouring oil in our lamp. Keep refreshing that thing. Keep it, keep it burning. Keep it alive. What is it going to take to keep living faith in Jesus Christ alive? Not a memory. Not, not something where I've grown hard and condemned and all real faith is gone. You see, right now you, you look at countries in the... In, in, uh, in the world where they have state churches. You know, the whole, whole nation is supposedly a, a Christian nation. And, and you have people, they're born into that, and they're automatically baptized into the church. And, and in their minds, well, if there's anything to it, I'm a Christian. Those, those, those societies are in collapse. There is, the people have grown downright hostile to Christianity, those, though their record, names are on a record somewhere in a, in a Christian church as, as a baptized member of the church. This, this approach is, is, is completely in collapse. You and I need to have a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It needs to be the precious treasure that we have. It needs to be something that we pursue and, 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 and guard. Guard your heart. Guard your walk with him. How do, I'm going to say how in just a moment. There are many ways. I don't know. Is, is that where I am drawing close? hope so. There are many ways people draw close to Jesus. But there are certain ways that I find absolutely essential, at least for me. I think everyone in, in, in one way or another needs these in their lives. Number one, reading or listening to the word. Our natural thoughts are not like his thoughts, and we need to keep coming back to his thoughts. We need our mind renewed, our thoughts corrected, and our attitudes adjusted, our pride humbled, our shame removed, and our faith built up. Nothing, absolutely Nothing replaces his word. You can listen to it on tapes. You can have someone else read it to you. This, is, this is, goes clear back to just to the earliest moments of Christianity. We've always listened to the word. This is the, this is the power uh, uh, in Judaism. 
that the word is the center of your life, that you keep coming back to the word. We must have the word of God. And you say, I don't know how. We'll teach you. Just as we're talking about the gifts of the spirit, and I've got that class going on on Thursday. Some of you are coming to. And then we've got an intensive coming and all. We have OSL, Operation Solid Lives. It's a four-week, five, five meetings on four weeks, and it's, it's, it's in this discipleship program. And what it'll do is teach you how to read the Word, teach you how to pray. It'll even have you go to church, hallelujah. It does, and you have to sit in the front row. I love it. Because I, I love, it's so affirming when people sit in the front row. It's like, thank you, you know. Uh, and, and, and so that for four weeks, I have certain people that I meet for the first time in a long time. You know, like, you're still here. Not, you know, they've always been somewhere else. And, and, uh, but it, it will teach you those skills. It will teach you how to meditate in the Word. We'll teach you how. Don't say you can't do it. Yes, you can. Here's, here's, the, part, here's the part that has to come to play. Your will. And he does give us an alarming note. Keep your relationship with me attached. Keep attached. So how do you do it? Well, I'm suggesting how I do it. And I think a lot of people do. One is read the word. Have it in your life. Number two, gathering with other believers to worship. Yes, we can worship alone and should. But something happens when God's people come together to commune with him. Sitting alone with him has a place too. But if that's all we do, we grow introspective and lonely. There's an us quality about following Jesus, not just a me quality. It's humbling to be one among many, but it's also strengthening. God's plan is to draw together a great family, not simply relate to individuals. His heart is to draw us into community. It's important to gather with other believers. I, I you know, when, when I'm alone, often when I'm on vacation or something, I may, I may not go to church because I don't know where to go. And I think I walk in and it's like, oh boy. So I, I don't. But I really miss being with you in worship and, and, and gathering. It's, I think God made me a pastor so I go to church. Uh, and, and, I, and I do too, three times a weekend. Yeah. But how often? I mean, I worship at home. Listen to me. I, talk, I, I'm, I'm, I do all the time. I'm with the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm the whole thing. But boy, when I get with you, just this morning, what a sweet worship. And I'm sitting in that chair, and often it's the prophetic words that come to me. The sense of guidance comes to me sitting right in that chair in the midst of you while you're worshiping around me. In the pre- There's something, and it's always been part of Christianity. This, this is us. This is what we do. We come together as a people, and together as a people, we glorify. As a family, because see, the whole thing is about family. He's putting a family together, not just saving a, a string of individuals. He's putting a family together. And, and, and so as we worship as his children together, there's a power and a presence that comes that simply isn't the same as when we're alone. Number three, a Sabbath. No, I'm not talking about a certain day of the week being more holy than another or of trying to define what constitutes work. But if a relationship with God is to be formed, we must schedule time to be with him. Busyness is one of the most damaging influences of all. It takes faith to stop working and rest. It takes patience to do nothing but read or listen or be quiet or do something edifying with family or friends when the demands are clamoring for attention. But setting aside at least a portion of a day has a huge impact. It heals us and settles us. And yes, it should be once a week. That's God's rhythm. Work six, rest one. Work six, rest one. You say, I'm just too busy. 
Well, I guarantee you, it's drying you out. It is drying you out. You are designed by the maker to need to rest with him and talk with him and fellowship with him at least on a serious time. And we're to pray and talk to him all the time. But to give him serious, reverent attention once a week. That's the way he designed us. And when we do it, we're healthier, we're stronger. Uh, those deep issues that have been weighing on you get worked through. Uh, you get whole. It's, that, that, just because we're not legalistic and having to keep eight day and all that, that doesn't mean that Sabbath principle isn't full of life. It is, and we need it. Number four, I get worse. Sa here we come. Fasting is practically a lost art. But when temptation grows strong or worries overwhelm us, I find fasting is a very real help in quieting them down and restoring my communication with God. I don't fast more than a meal or two. Don't get impressed. But nothing breaks a dry spell or a downward cycle like fasting. Did you hear what I said? This past week, Mary was gone to camp. We got all this going on. I got, I got real, real dry. And then I get, I get worried. And do you, none of you maybe can relate to this, but I get nervous and kind of worry about everything. And, and, and I could not get rid of it. And I was getting really carnal. You know, you get angry, start thinking about what people did to you. You know, you, you know does this happen to you? And I thought, and I tried to stop it. Like, stop? No, come on. I couldn't shake it. I could not shake that thing. I couldn't get the, I couldn't get the flesh to let go. And then the spirit whispered fast. And, and it was in the evening. And I said, all right. So the next day, you bet, I fasted. And I fast right on into the afternoon. I'm telling you, it calmed me down. It, uh, and I drink tea, I drink water while I'm doing it, that kind of thing. It's not, this, is not a, this is not some big deal. But I'll tell you something. That relationship came back. I centered down again. I don't know how do you call it. How do you say that? I got peaceful again. I got back with him. If you haven't tried fasting, I'm not suggesting weeks of no food. I am not suggesting any of that. I, I, this is not that. I'm suggesting a me meal. I usually skip breakfast and lunch. And then maybe somewhere in the afternoon when I'm done with my fast. And I always pray and have a real time, like, what do you want me to pray about now? And I have that engaged, and then I'll go ahead and eat something I want. Or I'll wait till dinner. But in it, it breaks the grip of the flesh. I don't know why. But if you're dealing with an addiction, try it. It's, it doesn't matter what addiction. Just try it. You'll see what I mean. Number five, regular confession of sin. Be fiercely honest with yourself. Let the Holy Spirit expose areas of failure. Confess them. And then remind yourself that Jesus bore your sins and broke their power on the cross. This keeps the conscience clean. And it also releases bold faith. I like to do this every time I take communion. It's very clear what the bread and cup represent. And they give me a practical way to transfer my sin, my sorrow, and my, or sickness to Jesus. Jesus never commands us to do something we can't do. And he commanded us to stay in relationship with him. And then he warned us what would happen if we didn't. So we must never take that relationship for granted. We must not allow ourselves to grow passive or indifferent. You say, well, I'm stuck in an addiction. I can't stop sinning. I don't know what to do. What should I do? Keep repenting. 
Do not walk away from Jesus. Just keep repenting and saying, and, 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 and don't go, God, take it all away. He's not going to take it all away. He's going to teach you how to overcome it. You see the difference? You must learn. You are not a passive. He's teaching. You're his child. So he's not going to go, doink, you know, and oh, fine, thank you, there it went. You know, I will say he will break the pressure at times. You can go, oh, God, help me. And there's moments he'll just snap it off you. Thank heavens. But ultimately, he, he's teaching you to walk free of this thing, to lay hold of his resources and walk free. And yes, you can. But if you don't know how yet, just keep repenting. Just bring it to him. Let him wash you clean. And you go on again. You stay attached. You say, what if I die that way? It's the best way to die. That's the way you die. You, you die attached. You die, you, die, you, you, you die with faith in Jesus Christ. You follow? And you will go to heaven. This is what he's done. Isn't he wonderful? So we must never take that relationship for granted. We must not allow ourselves to go passive or indifferent. As we've seen, God has done more than enough to make it possible for even the weakest among us to walk securely with him. All we need to do is decide to lay hold of the one who's laid hold of us for the rest of our lives. And then life really begins. Would you stand with me? I am the vine, he says, and you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you. Even as the vine must remain, must, uh, the, the canes, the branches must abide in the vine, so must you. You must stay with me, stay attached to me, be mine. Lord, this day we choose that. We choose to stay attached. We choose to believe in you and trust you with all our heart. We love you. Lord, for those of us who struggle, where the condemnation comes and the devil wants to say he's sick of you, we break that thing in the name of Jesus. The truth is, you who began a good work in us will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, thank you for laying hold of us. We lay hold of you. We thank you for, your, for, the, for the amazing grace that you've given to wash us and wash us and wash us. But we ask also that you would teach us as, as sons and daughters to walk in freedom, to walk in boldness, to walk uh, without these powers uh, gripping us. Walk, walk us out. We pray that. We believe it. And Lord, we will do our part. We are not going to passively sit by but we will do what you put in front of us. As sons or as daughters, we will walk after you in obedience. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your plan and purpose for each of us. We receive it now in Jesus' powerful name. If you agree with my prayer, would you say amen? amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.